0: Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China-Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe.
1: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
2: Good afternoon.
0: Cobus, there's been a lot of news lately about Kenya, both because it is in this debt restructuring process underway now with the Chinese, and also because Joe Biden last week uh, reached out to his counterpart at the State House in Nairobi, Uru, Kenyatta, and they had a talk, and on the agenda was the free trade agreement. Now, that would be uh, the U.S.'s second free trade agreement after Morocco in Africa. For the most part, that agreement has died down since the Trump administration left office, but there is some indication that it is on the up and up again. And at the same time, the United States does seem to be eyeing Kenya as a particularly important country in East Africa and in Africa writ large, only because it is so strategically located and it has this massive Chinese presence there. And one has to think that in today's world, where the United States has identified China as its major competitor, that wherever the Chinese are going to be big, the Americans are going to be close behind. Very quickly on the Chinese side of everything. uh, So debt is obviously the big issue. We've been covering this a lot in our daily email newsletter, updating you on all of the kind of minutia related to the increase in the debt ceiling that the Treasury is pushing for, the $245 million that the Chinese have deferred in debt that is going to come due in June also these big infrastructure projects that are underway the Nairobi expressway which is being built right now by the China Road and Bridge Corporation repaying the SGR loans is proving to be very difficult and one other new project came up that is having some difficulty Kenya Telecom it appears to be having some difficulties in repaying its loans to China Exim Bank as well so Kobus, right now, Kenya is one of these countries where it has the attention of both the Americans and the Chinese, much like where I am here in Asia, in Vietnam, very similar situation. So far, Kenyatta has been playing both quite well. And trying to maximize the relationship with both, but there's a lot of pressure on Kenyatta to get this right.
2: Yeah, and and one of the big pressures is just the sustainability of of all of this debt. You know, it, it raises a lot of questions about about the future of the of the Kenyan economy, and and those are questions being asked by by great powers, but also within the continent, because Kenya is such a such a keystone economy in Africa. Uh, you know, any any kind of wobble in, on the Kenyan side tends to reverberate through through the rest of the subregion. So it's 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 an interesting time, but it's also a worrying time.
0: It is a worrying time. There's a lot to consider right now. Today's show, we spoke with Elijah Muni. Unfortunately... Uh, Kobus, you weren't available to join us for this amazing discussion. Elijah is an assistant professor of international relations at the United States International University in Nairobi. He's a specialist on Kenyan international relations, and he and I had this conversation both about the United States, which is where we started our discussion, but then what is Kenya going to do about the very issue, Kobus, that you raised in terms of managing and servicing this debt? A lot of it goes to the Chinese, but not all of it. And so it's a really difficult challenge for Kenya right now. Let's take a listen to my conversation with Elijah (music) Munyi. Professor Elijah Munyi, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And a very good afternoon to you from Nairobi. Good afternoon, Eric. Well, let's start our conversation in getting your assessment of how do you think Kenya is faring right now in this moment where the United States and China are in a global battle for influence and Kenya is certainly on the agenda of both countries. How would you assess how the Kenyatta administration is managing relations with both countries?
3: Um, I think they're doing well. Um, Why do I say that? I would say that because in terms of the two key things that um, Kenya is doing with China and Kenya is doing with the United States, I I think Kenya has done well. in terms of China, I would say I would think the relations and the management of the relationship is good because um, Kenya was able to sort of, well, push China or ask China or request China for, for that loan um, loan repayment extension or the, the, the period not to pay for a while. So I think that's a good sign. Uh, in terms of the US, um, the main thing that has been happening is the FTA, which, Kenya managed to, Kenya seems eager to go on. And interestingly, the United States itself now seems to be also eager to go on. So I think so far, not saying that it's going to be smooth and that Kenya is going to manage future relations well, but but I think so far it's going well. It's a matter of, um, I, I think there's a lot of wait and see from, from the US side, What's what, what sort of direction Biden is going to take. So I think so far it's good. And um, it's more of a a little bit of wait and see what steps uh, the U.S. will take. I think what happens next will depend a lot on what the U.S. does. Let's stay with the U.S. for a
0: little bit before we get to China and some of the loan issues and the economic issues that you specialize in. But speaking of the free trade agreement, this, is, this was an initiative that was uh, put forward by the Trump administration. And it was done under the guise because the Trump administration did not like multilateral agreements. And so it wanted to do more bilateral agreements. And a lot of people have questioned the wisdom of a bilateral agreement with an African country in the era of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is that bilateral agreements might undermine the very essence of the AFCFTA. What is the value to Kenya? to having a bilateral free trade agreement with the United States, instead of bolstering the World Trade Organization and the multilateral order?
3: Ah, the, the value for Kenya is very clear. Kenya does uh, probably 80% of its trade with the United States under the AGOA agreement. The AGOA agreement is a unilateral US um, preference system for developing countries like Kenya. so. Kenya's benefit is very clear. In case AGOA is not renewed, AGOA presently expires in 2025. And this is certainly going to be one of the big issues for Biden and Africa whether to extend AGOA. If AGOA is not extended, then Kenya Kenya US relation Kenya US trade relations fall under the WTO uh, usual WTO tariffs which would make Kenyan tariffs uh, go higher or Kenyan the 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 tariffs for U- Kenyan exports to the U.S. go higher. So I think Kenya is, is simply trying to secure its exports to the U.S., which I don't think is a bad idea. And I don't think really that the, the Continental African Free Trade Agreement has the same purpose as the, as the FTO with the U.S. So for the, and I, I don't think they are also exclusive. So Kenya can bolster its trade with other African countries while at the same time, uh, bolstering its, its trade or securing its trade, at least with the United States and China and other countries. So I don't think it's a question of if or all, one, one or the other. I, I think it's a mischaracterization of uh, what probably Kenya should be doing. Um, in terms of the US, I think actually the greater, in, the, the greater question was why the US seemed so keen on, on choosing Kenya um, with a very minimal trade To have an FTA. Of course, the two countries are so asymmetrical. So that raised questions about if it's a suitable deal, and why the US particularly, since it was indeed proposed by the US, why the US seemed so keen on on this trade deal with Kenya. So Kenya would become only the second country after Morocco um, to sign this kind of trade deal. And and, and I think really, that's the interesting bit. Um, I think Kenya was going to be used as a as a case study, as a a sort of a signal of how important, how serious the US administration was about this idea of, you know, the uh, Trump-Africa policy about competitiveness. So I think Kenya was simply being used as a strategic signal to other countries and to the the Chinese particularly on how serious the US was about having um, sort of uh, uh, reciprocal trade deals with African countries. Um, and and the, the fact that the Biden administration seems eager to go on with that, I think that's what makes it interesting. And that's what I think raises questions of if Democrats also think that maybe Agua may not be renewed. But, but I think, um, of course, there's a big controversy domestically, uh, domestically meaning Africa, over why Kenya should negotiate for this deal unilaterally. I, I think that's a question for East African countries to figure out. Uh, but I think it's 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 not an exclusive uh, one or the other. I think both can be done.
0: Well, it's interesting because there's also a free trade agreement experiment that's underway in Mauritius. Uh, at the beginning of this year, the Chinese uh, launched their first free trade agreement in Africa. And so they're looking at this also as a case study. Could you envision a free trade agreement with the Chinese? Would that be productive? Or does that risk flooding the Kenyan market with Chinese goods that already pose a problem in certain sectors,
3: I think it was it would be an absolute risk. I, th- I think I think it would be an absolute risk, and um, I think the, the the nature of trade with China, China Kenya versus the nature of trade with U.S. Uh, Kenya is a little bit different. So we've been buying, of course, planes from the U.S., but when you look at the range of Chinese imports in Kenya, is a bit broader. It's a bit wider. It's uh, retail. It's electronics. It's um, I think there's a fear that if you do, I, I simply don't see an FTA with China. Um, I think that would be just opening up the floodgates. And and in any case, we, we're exporting very little to China. And the inhibitions that make Kenya not export its goods to China are not primarily tariff-based. So I don't see why Kenya would want to really... Um, get into an FTA with China with the US of course it makes sense because if the GSP is removed if AGOA is removed then tariffs go up so it's so Kenya's motivation is very much tariff based um, and that's not the case with China what what I would what I would hope uh, to see in terms of Kenya China relations would be if China would be willing to get into the kind of sort of unilateral free no 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 not free trade agreements but unilateral preference systems, you know, like we have the, the AGOA for the US, we have the EBA for Europe. I, I think these kind of things would be good sort of uh, beginnings. And then after 10, 15 years, maybe they can get into an FTA. So how is it that we've got China as a big, big, big importer? Um, China is expected to be driving demand for a lot of countries around the world in the next 10, 15 years. So uh, why not get into a, into a preference? trading preferential system where, you know, Kenya gets sort of its, maybe a certain percentage of its goods to China uh, duty-free. Although imports from China have
0: gone down in 2020, in in part because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis that that brought upon, and there's more trade that's now being done within the East African community, China is the largest importing country in Kenya, you mentioned that it is, you know, difficult for Kenyans to export out to China, and that's in part why there's an enormous trade deficit that exists between the two countries right now in China's favor. What are the difficulties for Kenyans to export to China?
3: Um, because I think China is very well provided for by its what what I call the sort of the the, the broader Asian South Asian economies. So the economies around China, the Hong Kong's, up to the Vietnam's, where you are, uh, South Asian countries, uh, we they will basically have almost everything that Kenya has, including tea from India, and 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 uh, yeah. So I think part of part of the problem is how competitive is Kenya in terms of the the things that it exports to China, which would be tea, perhaps. Um, so I think there's a lot of competitiveness issues as a, as a country in terms of, in terms of those things. Um, of course, there's a problem also of, for example, when you look at Kenya-EU or Kenya-US relations, particularly Kenya-EU relations, the, the history has meant that we have had a foothold in Europe for 40, 50 years. Uh, it's not the same thing for China. So in China, there has been this issue of trying to capture the market share, which is not easy and which in many times actually has been instigated by, let's say, Chinese investors who come here and they help you to get into the market. So it's, it's basically the competitiveness of other countries um, that would be selling the same things as, as Kenya, as well as the historical uh, lack of, you know, long running historical relations in, in terms of trade.
0: It seems like the Chinese have been trying to diversify their imports from Kenya. There was a high-profile avocado deal that was announced a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago. And and everybody was very excited because avocados are more profitable than coffee. It's a fruit that generates quite a bit of revenue. Farmers were switching over their crops. And yet, because of the import requirements, only one out of 100 approved avocado vendors have been able to export their goods to China. China is a huge market for avocados. Here in Vietnam, other countries in South America, Thailand have been exporting millions of tons of avocados. And yet Kenya has not been able to do it. Why is Kenya struggling with avocados, but yet other developing countries that are similar to Kenya have not had the same problems? And I guess I'm not going necessarily specifically on the avocado question, but wondering, is Kenya doing everything it possibly can to take advantage of the China market when other developing countries that are agrarian based as well seem to
3: be performing better? Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. I think um, there are problems. I mean, Kenya generally, I think, has a big, big problem with the whole question of production and export. Uh, lately, when you look at the way the government behaves in the last 5, 10, 15 years, you know, we've become a very we've become very comfortable with this idea of we are a consumption economy. So in fact, even a lot of our GDP growth is derived from government consumption, which means imports and so on. Um, so we get excited at the idea of, of avocado exports, but actually what, to the, the extent to which government goes on the ground in terms of uh, extension services for farmers, in terms of standard standard um, services for f- farmers, is not as good. Uh, we might have problems in terms of managing the small scale production that Kenya often has, um, although it's something that has been done, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in terms of coffee, for example, but um, when I look at when I look at, for example, one industry that does very well is the flower industry in terms of standards, uh, they, they, they have really broken into one of the best standards uh, uh, levels for the EU market. And, and I think it's the level in terms of scale of the people of the farms involved in flower industry, which is unlike the, the sort of the farms involved in the avocado industry. So possibly the small scaleness of the industry is a problem. And definitely, government isn't doing enough. Uh, one of the issues we've been having with avocado, for example, is you know people harvesting early, earlier than uh, is supposed to, uh, which then makes um, that they don't get the right standards for for the exports. So, and and that's a simple thing. That's that's a simple thing of manage managing uh, farmers, which of course extension services haven't been good at doing. Uh, so obviously, when you look at When you look at the whole economic disposition, economic philosophy of countries like Vietnam now, uh, or even Cambodia, um, we we are not yet there in terms of how important, how central is export-led growth to us. We will talk about it, but we we don't do as much as those countries are doing. But
0: this is going to be even more important in the era of the AFCFTA now, because... One of the challenges facing African countries, especially in East Africa, is product diversification. So Rwanda is not going to sell coffee to Kenya, right? I mean, Kenyans don't need to buy coffee from Rwanda. And yet the problem is, is that too many countries are producing commodities that are similar to one another. So this product diversification challenge that you're talking about for Asia also seems like it would apply for the domestic intra-African
3: market as well. Actually, Eric, you know... I, I, I don't know whether I should say this on your show, but I'm one of those people who is a bit uh, I, I'm not as, as, as enthusiastic as people are about this free trade agreement. because the question I ask is this: What is the historical lesson and experience of development and growth? When you look at Japan, when you look at South Korea, when you look at Vietnam now, when you look at Thailand, when you look at even Europe in the Marshall Plan in the Marshall Plan time, When you want to develop, when you want to get wealthy, what do you do? You sell goods to the people who are wealthier than you. So uh, all these countries I've mentioned, beginning with Europe after the Second World War, they were producing primarily for export to the United States, which was the wealthiest country then. When you look at the development of Korea and, and Japan, particularly the 60s and 70s, their development was fueled by exports to the United States. Only when the Chinese become as rich and, of course, a big economy, do we see more of South Korean cars or South Korean goods going to China. What's the point? The point is, if we are making money from the Europeans, if we can make money from the Europeans or the Japanese or the Chinese or the Americans, we. I don't think we need to be obsessed about this thing of having to sell to ourselves. One. Two, what you've mentioned about um, the product diversification is a big problem, and that's partly why we don't trade Um, if you look at Kenya and Uganda for example we we've been doing a bit of trading uh, but what are we trading in we are trading in um, partly because let's say Kenya Uganda Kenya Uganda Tanzania this triangle for for example we are trading a lot because of the seasonal uh, deficiencies for example sometimes when we have oranges in Kenya Um, When we don't have oranges in Kenya, we have them in Tanzania. So we do actually buy a lot of their food. Um, The other thing is that we haven't sort of, Kenya has also moved out of probably uh, farming in a big way for things like maize. So we get them from Uganda and other places. So indeed, if we have product diversification, which we don't have, but if we had it, we would trade more. And thirdly, when countries like the East African countries, like the East African, uh, five East African countries come together and say, let's have uh, an industrial policy where we can try to look at how we can enhance industrialization among themselves. There is nowhere where product diversification and a strategy, a a clearly defined strategy for product diversification comes up. So so I agree with you. I, I think it's going to be very important. Um, and I think it's going to be actually disappointing because we will we will cut the tariffs between ourselves and suddenly we will also realize that we we still can't trade because if I want a lift, if I want a car, if I want sort of the industrial goods, I will still have to go to Japan. Um, it doesn't matter whether there are zero tariffs from Congo. Um, I'll still go to Japan. So I think it's it's a very key thing and I think it's something that we are not sufficiently... I think the, the FTA is too exciting in a manner that will not be necessarily productive. So I, I know it's very unpopular, but uh, it's an unpopular view. But I think that's the way it is.
0: No, but it's interesting to hear it. And I think it's important to have that voice in the conversation that there's a lot that still needs to be figured out in order for this trade free trade agreement to work. And also bear in mind that free trade is one of the key reasons why we've seen populist uprisings in many other countries, namely the United States and Europe and whatnot, who feel that working people have not benefited from free trade agreements, that the benefits of free trade all went to the top and to the elites and not to the people at the bottom of the pyramid. So that, too, could be another interesting issue to see if that plays out in the AFCFTA. Let's change uh, you know, course a little bit in our discussion and focus on the question of debt. Uh, debt is the dominant economic issue today in Kenya. You mentioned that uh, China provided $245 million of debt deferral that, again, doesn't cancel any of the debt. It doesn't wipe out any of the debt, but it does give a little bit of breathing room for the Kenyan government to be able to reallocate some of those funds that were going to go for debt servicing to be able to go, say, into COVID relief or other uh, parts of the society. However, though, Kenya's debt now is pushing up towards 9 trillion shillings. That's a psychologically important barrier. The, the, the Treasury has warned that it probably will go up even more. Debt servicing costs are going up as well. You have been downgraded by Moody's and by S&P Global. The ratings agencies are not pleased with what they're seeing in Kenya. So I guess the question is, how does a country like Kenya that lacks the valuable natural resources that Angola has or that Nigeria has, how does it pull itself out of this debt hole that seems to be getting bigger and bigger? And of course, the Chinese are the largest holder of Kenya's external debt, not the largest debt holder, but bilateral external debt, very clear here, bilateral debt, the Chinese are number one here, and they play a very important role in this discussion. Talk to us a little bit about the role of debt right now in Kenya. I think
3: the first question: What happens? How do we? How could we get out of this? I don't see uh, the solutions are not really very clear and they are not very good. Partly because actually this week there was a discussion about extending that nine trillion debt ceiling, and and when you look at the politics and the parliament, the way it's saying it's basically sort of it, it's it's not it's not going to be a debate. It's simply passing and 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 raising the ceiling. So indeed the, the, there's going to be more borrowing. So how do we get out of it? As I see it, Kenya will possibly need to default in order to have a government that really takes the debt matter seriously. Actually, it's interesting because um, I guess that's lo- how do you lend Kenya? I mean, in the first place, how do you lend Kenya, whether you're the bilaterals, the, the Chinas and the French? or your World Bank for that matter. Maybe World Bank and IMF I can understand. But it's interesting for Kenya because somehow in spite of this debt, there's still creditors who are willing to give money to Kenya. So I think the solutions will actually have to be external. Uh, it's not going to be an internal control of debt. It's, it's it has to become it has to come from external sources, external forces. Those could be the IMF in case we default, uh, whether it's to China or to the French or to the Bretton Woods institutions themselves, who I think are the biggest um, World Bank, um, which I think could happen. I think it would be the, the, it's the most likely uh, result. So we've seen the World Bank uh, about two weeks ago. I mean the IMF sort of giving us a loan and, and putting up some, some conditionality. I think this, is likely to be the way uh, in the short term. Uh, China, of course, now as the biggest bilateral lender, um, the the one of the one of the proposals that often comes out when countries are in Kenyan situation is of course debt forgiveness, uh, which came up, I think China has sort of dampened it down. So we are likely yeah, China to doesn't s- do that. Yeah, yeah. So China is, doesn't have an appetite for that. Uh, so And and I don't think China want, would be willing to forgive uh, debt if we don't see the same coming from the Paris group, uh, from the Western lenders. So um, that would be the second solution whereby we, we have a big chunk of debt, uh, maybe 20% of our debt canceled or something like that. But what's the motivation again? So why would the creditors want to cancel that debt? Um, it would have to come with a huge, um, sort of trading in some aspect of policy or resources in Kenya. Something uh, something would have to be given. So the, the debt question is a big problem, and, and and I see the solutions mostly coming from external sources. But you talk
0: about a default, and the default would be extraordinarily painful on the average Kenyan because that means that a greater percentage of revenue would be allocated for... Non social services and whatnot, because the cost of borrowing would go up considerably on debt. It it would make life very, very painful, don't
3: you think? Very painful, but but I think it's it's probably where we are going, and and life is very painful for Kenyans already. Uh, because even if we don't have an official default, the government has already started raising the the prices of the the prices of commodities, and I mean the taxation is really going high. So Kenyans are really paying through the nose. Um, so, I, I think it would be painful, but when we think about the way the politicians are approaching the whole debt issue, you get a sense that there's really no appreciation of how bad things are. Because as you may know now, we are in the cause of um, rewriting the constitution to make government even bigger. So we are expanding. So in 2022, 2023, and after the new elections. We'll probably have a bigger government, and I think part of the part of the expansion in the Kenyan debt has been this issue of government, the, the devolution, um, among other things. Of course, among other things, meaning corruption and unproductive uses. But but big government is still on the cards, make it, to make it even bigger. So there is no indication that there is an, a domestic understanding of how crucial it is to actually be serious and and reduce the government spending. So a default would be very painful, uh, but it might be what would precipitate a serious rethinking at the national level and a serious change for Kenya's borrowing habits.
0: A big part of the debt problem is related to the construction and operation now of the standard gauge railway. And that railway has not met expectations at all. It's not profitable. It's never been profitable. Now, a lot of people would say it's not fair to expect a railway to be profitable. Last year, the German railway network uh, received subsidies of $18 billion. Amtrak in the United States is not profitable. It is subsidized. The Chinese railways are subsidized. The French railway, SNCF, is subsidized. So I've never really understood the expectation that the standard gauge railway should be profitable, especially five years into its existence. That being said, however... A lot of people, including the late scholar Ian Taylor, who recently passed away, and he one of his last papers that he wrote was uh, how what a lunacy the standard gauge railway was from the very beginning, how it was premised on faulty assumptions about the amount of cargo that it was going to take, that the building of it was had too many assumptions that never were going to live up, and it was just a fallacy from the beginning. And I think there's a lot of bitterness and resentment in many parts of Kenyan society that they bought something that simply isn't going to ever pay off and not even in the expanded economic activity that other infrastructure projects might deliver. So, what's your assessment now looking back on the standard gauge railway and the amount of debt that's owed to the China Exim Bank to pay for it and to maintain it, what do you think of the situation regarding the SGR?
3: Lots of lots lots of problems, lots of problems Eric, and I think this is where China also gets the blame because they have done the standard gauge railway. The the selling points looked very rosy on paper and you wonder whether whether it is the Chinese or the Kenyans who sort of uh, were blind to what was going to happen. Um, What you mentioned I think is a very good qualifier. Railways don't seem to make profits anywhere, including in China. So what was the point of building it? I think the point might have been good uh, in the sense of easing uh, congestion and traffic and so on and so on and maybe it's done that to some extent uh the question is um i think the cost of the of the of the standard gauge railway partly has something to do with the cost and value of land in Kenya and and the whole land issue in Kenya because when the the other railways that Uga- you no the ethiopian one and the tanzanian ones they have been laughing at us in Kenya um because of the exorbitant price for hours and i think the difference the big difference particularly when you compare with the ethiopian one is that in ethiopia you the the government can simply command commandeer some land and the railway goes on in kenya it's a bit different it actually it's very different and and this land question in kenya becomes very expensive so any construction in kenya becomes very expensive even without the corruption uh, simply because of the kind of um, compensations for land that have, been, have to be done. I think that that needs to be understood and it's something that we Kenyans need to grapple with and I don't know what the solution would be. Um, the second issue with the whole uh, standard gauge railway, again, of course we, we, like, we agree it's a disaster, but are we learning from the lessons? One of those lessons is, um, why are our projects so overwhelmingly funded by the Exim Bank? So this is, again, where China is becoming, takes part of the blame. At least World Bank funding would have domestic components of of that money. But basically, we are borrowing money and sending it back straight to China. And and this is one wonder. I mean, this is where now China starts to get the blame that, well, you're, you're dealing with a very weak government, of course, compared to you, big China. Yes, I guess they probably have a difficult uh, standing up to you. But don't you think you have a responsibility to uh, to, to improve the governance of international uh, aid or international lo- loans in a certain way? I, I say this because, again, now, as you know, in Nairobi, we are again having this uh, 54 billion, 22 kilometer road being constructed by the Chinese right in the middle of the city from the airport. That's the the Nairobi Expressway. We have been told about the approximate cost for that road. But one wonders at this point, could it be actually that they have underestimated what the, those costs are going to be if they're actually going to pay for that road? So it's it's the standard gauge railway is of course a disaster, but I think it's more of a disaster because it's a sign of how our dealings with China are not being scrutinized and not just from you know the Kenyan side, but also from the from the Chinese side, one of your your
0: colleagues in academia in Kenya, uh, David Nd, who's a very famous, well known economist, he has this idea, and and it's very interesting, that he hates the fact that so much of Kenyan money has been going to service debt for infrastructure, and he believes that the money would be much better spent on building human development and human resources, education, social services, healthcare, and whatnot, and that infrastructure isn't the priority right now. That goes against everything that the development sector talks about, that the Chinese talk about, and that you hear from the likes of President Kenyatta, who says infrastructure is the end-all be-all for economic growth. Where do you fall on that spectrum of where David and D is leaning and saying that human development is where you need to be, because if you can't read, can't write, not healthy, and don't have you know strong social services, then infrastructure doesn't do any good. Or on the Chinese side, President Kenyatta's side, which is now common wisdom in many parts of Africa, and certainly here in Asia, that without infrastructure, there is no economic development. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
3: Um, <laughs> I'm on the balance. Of course, you need both. I, and, and I think we can't criticize uh, infrastructure, uh, development too much. I I think what David D is suggesting, which he might be exaggerating, is there's a lot of disillusionment with what is happening in 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 the the, the human development side of things, so health and education. Yeah. So there's I think the politics of the last fifteen years has sort of um, or maybe the last five or ten years. There's too much focus on 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 infrastructure as legacy projects. I think that's part of the feeling Um, at the detriment of other important things like education and health, which again goes back to, I I think what those people in government probably are doing deliberately or inadvertently, I'm not sure, but I think there's a movement in Kenya towards privatization of what were hitherto public services like education and health. So I don't know whether it's deliberate, but basically when you look at what is happening, um, there is very little focus on actually improving public access for very low-income people to healthcare systems. And, and there's this f- thing that happened, you know, in Kenya. I mean, if you go to Europe, uh, for example, I don't know about the United States a lot, but if you go to Europe, there, there is still an, an, an understanding of the role of government in housing, for example. That's something that has disappeared in Kenya until now when uh, Kenya is coming back to start building some housing uh, systems. In Singapore where you lived, I think it was big in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so I think there was a move away from uh, public investment in health and education, very important. And I think part of the thinking was that, well, let's now focus on uh, development, uh, infrastructure development. So I think it's important I think it's important there might be too much emphasis on big big um infrastructure like the expressway in nairobi and you wonder what's going on in eldoret and nakuru and meru and mombasa and other other small towns so maybe the concentration of that wealth in nairobi also it could be a problem but but i i mean in nairobians are really really very grateful for and and happy generally about the the super it's called the thicker super highway which was built about um, 15 20 years ago by kibaki. So I, I I well I think D has become a bit uh, sort of angry and and but he has points of course he has points uh, but but his views might be a bit clouded by his political leanings.
0: Yeah it's interesting because I I think there's one part of this discussion that's actually moot in that debt financed infrastructure from the chinese may not be an issue that you have to contend with anymore simply because all the evidence seems to be pointing that the amount of money that the chinese exim bank and the china development bank those are the two policy banks are making available to countries like kenya is drying up that the chinese really are not in the mood to lend billions of dollars to build railways in places like kenya anymore simply because it looks like as you pointed out kenya is going to default on the debt and the chinese are going to take a haircut on that there's Pretty much no way out of that, so so we're we're moving out. So the Nairobi Expressway is very interesting because that is a public private partnership. China Road and Bridge Corporation will get up to a billion dollars over the twenty seven years of running it, assuming that their models work out. But that could be an interesting kind of future as we look at going going forward in terms of how infrastructure is financed. But what I guess what I'm very curious about is. So much of the China-Kenya relationship of the past 10 years has been predicated on this debt relationship. One project after another, whether it's the port expansion in Lamu, whether it's the Laconi Bridge, floating bridge in Mombasa, whether it is the Kenya Telecom fiber optic backbone, all of that was financed through debt, not to mention the standard gauge railway. Now that debt is not really going to be an option with the Chinese, how do you think that's going to change the China-Kenya relationship?
3: Well, like you said, we are a very small, 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 little pin in China's cog. So how does it change? If we are not useful anymore, whether in terms of uh, a data, then China moves on to other countries. And I think that's the unfortunate, maybe responsible part for China. When, when you look at the U.S., for example, um, and I don't mean to say that I support everything the U.S. has done, but when you look at the U.S., lead in development finance in the 60s and 50s even for, for Europe. It 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 was a bit more complete in the sense that you're giving the Marshall Plan or you're giving the South Koreans um you you have to you have to work on well or the countries have to work on the productive powers. In in other words, you give them money um in order for them to produce goods, in order for you to buy the goods. That that's the way it it seemed to have worked successfully, whether it's China, whether it's Japan, South Korea, um, Europe under reconstruction. So I think a big part of the Chinese loans was not has not been properly geared towards uh, you know productive capacity. So as we give in money, are we watching their exports to us? Uh, are they growing? And if not, why? So it's not been complete. I, I think this is where it's not. So if the debt situation, um, which seem to be to have been the farcrum of the relationship, then fails. Um, I think China is big. I think China has many, many places and many countries to look out to. I, I suppose they will move to the next country. So, unfortunate, too bad for Kenya. Yeah, that's interesting. That could be a big change
0: because China's played a very big role in Kenya's international relations for the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, let's close out our discussion on FOCAC. That's the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. That's the triennial summit. Every three years, Xi Jinping gets everybody together. This is a more popular gathering than even the United Nations General Assembly for African leaders. It's really turned out over the past 20 years where the amount of money that the Chinese have been putting forward keeps going up. Everybody gets out their big wish list of things that they want from the Chinese, and they go and they say, okay, fund this, let's get money for that and whatnot. Uh, It's probably going to be different this year. We don't know what the the tone and vibe is going to be. It's probably going to focus less on giving out cash, more on vaccines, more on maybe possibly debt relief and things like that. But if you were to be called into President Kenyatta's office and he said, Professor, tell me what I should ask for the Chinese. Tell me what, how I should position myself with the Chinese at FOCAC in Dakar this year. What would you tell President
3: Kenyatta? Oh, that would be very simple. Um, let them bring their investors here in a certain sector. Let's work on a three-year program where we do major transfers of Chinese factories to Kenyan special economic zones, and let's export those things back to China. So it's got to be productive. It's got to be. Let's let's work with the Chinese to help our productive powers, um, and the Chinese have immense potential to do that. We can we can become the toy making. Capital of the world. I mean, the the time the Taiwanese did a great job just making bicycles and umbrellas. So the Chinese have immense potential. We will work. We can. If Kenyatta called me, I would ask him. Let's identify a park. Let's let's get and we have the parks already. Actually, we we've got different uh, many many uh, industrial parks. So let's make sure that we've got a huge clothing ra- line or a huge toy making line uh, that going to employ 50,000 Kenyans in the next two years and let's see um, exports going up. So basically it would be, what talk to President Xi, how has he made it? He's made it through very careful government intervention. Um, Maybe President Kenyatta would need a bit of a lesson in terms of leadership a bit and and government government making sure that they're in control and in support of businesses um, from Xi. Uh, but then it would it would very much be identify a sector, get moving on it. We we need not be competitive now in that sector. So be imaginative. Uh, I don't know. We could be we could make syringes, for example. Uh, it it should be something innovative and 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 ambitious that we may not necessarily be making. It could be beefing up what we are making, but something industrial. And that, that what are the Chinese going to need a lot in the next? Ten years, for example, let's focus on that. So it would be productive. Let's base the production of a very key aspect of Chinese consumption in the next five to ten years. Um, so it would be it would be pretty straightforward. But but generally talking about FOCAC, um, it's coming up. Yeah, we don't know how it's going to be. It's probably going to be virtual, less interesting. Um, it's. I think the Chinese will focus a lot on the free free trade agreement that the Africans have made. So I think there's an opportunity if Africans were organized, if the leaders were organized, this would be the time that we should be seeing the development of a common sort of a common trade communique of what the Africans would African, African countries would be asking of China. And the one one of the suggestions that I would make with regards to that, for example, was for um, for a, our a unilateral generalized system of preferences, like we have the EBA. Um, if, it's, if it's a question of standards, the Chinese can come and help that. Um, the other thing that I think will be coming up uh, definitely is now what we, you know, the COVAX thing and the COVID and, and, and the vaccines. And I, I don't think the Chinese really want to beef up their health intelligence diplomacy in terms of multilateral systems so i think there, there is likely going to be a lot of funding for the african cdc from the from the chinese um so i think a lot of a lot of um a big aspect of the conversations there will be health co- collaboration or co- cooperation and and i think a lot of it will be channeled through the cdc which then gives china a really strong uh, a very good stronghold in terms of uh, health intelligence something to really rival the american cdc which has Uh, sort of had a monopoly for many years that is going to come up i think china doesn't want that conversation really because i suppose countries like kenya what they would be doing is to sort of pre-cut countries to ask for some sort of those kinds of deferrals and maybe debt forgiveness i think it would be a very good test case to see how much african countries can push uh, china for either deferrals or or debt forgiveness Uh, we don't we don't know as far as debt is concerned even for those countries in africa which are not really much in debt too much in debt m- my advice to the presidents would be well get a loan but let let, let that loan have better domestic uh, spillover effects let's not take the loan back straight to the china exim so i would really urge for a for a relooking of the governance of, of the loans and Certainly not loans from Exim Bank. If you get a loan from the Exim Bank, we all know what the main interest of that loan is. It's very much the, the creditor is, is getting jobs for their companies. So I would, I would call for a rethink and, and reshuffling of that loan system where uh, money is given by, by the Exim Banks.
0: Well, I do hope that somebody at the state house is listening and invites you to come in for some tea to give them some of that great advice. Elijah Munyi is an assistant professor of international relations at the United States International University in Nairobi and an expert on Kenyan international relations and we've benefited so much from your insights today. Thank you so much, Professor Munyi, for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric, for having me. Kobus, that was really one of the most insightful conversations that I've had about Kenya and China Africa relations in a very, very long time. I love the contrarian points of view that Elijah takes on so many different areas. Number one, let's talk about the AFCFTA. He made this really interesting point that he is not as optimistic about its success as we're hearing from so many other people. The idea that he says that developing countries trading with other developing countries will not produce the kind of wealth that developing countries trade with advanced economies. That's an interesting concept. Uh, I will say that in Asia, there's a lot of intra-Asian trade within and among developing countries uh, that has helped grow the economy. But at the end of the day, selling to China, Japan, and Korea, and the United States as what's driven the economies out here. To Elijah's point, he thinks that selling obviously to the big powers in Asia and Europe and the US is what will drive trade. So interesting to hear that, that kind of contrarian view. Very interesting.
2: You know, it, it'll be. You know, I'm, I'm very sad that I miss this conversation. Um, you know, because there's, there's so many questions that immediately pop up. Like one one of them being, um, you know, I, I wonder. I, I wonder to which extent the one the one excludes the other. You know, to, to, so so for example having having cross border trade in in between african countries is w- one thing that that could spark is is more complicated supply chains you know of of you know finishing intermediate versions of products that end up being being exported from one african country you know started in a different african country or with components kind of moving between the countries i guess the the issue there is whether these countries have set up any of these complementarities so far and I, as as far as i've seen not many have you know so 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 the issue is you know i don't i don't think kind of the, the issue is simply you know whether whether there'll be these poor countries will be able to trade trade themselves rich by trading by you know kind of with with each other but like how that can be balanced with other kinds of trade um but yeah you know kind of like'm I'm, I'm sad that I, that I actually can't kind of ask Elijah more in more detail about that
0: don't worry we're going to have Elijah come back on the show again I promise you because he again as you as you all heard in this show he was fantastic uh let's talk about the debt question and he brought up this issue that he thinks that, obviously, uh, as we heard, Kenya is not going to be able to get out of its debt hole that it's in right now. And the debt hole keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's interesting that we heard this also coming from some economists in Nigeria. Nigeria discovered, I don't know how you discover, but $5.8 billion that had been undispersed. These are loans that had been on the books, but they have not actually used them. And economists there, and they were on CNBC last week talking about this, are worried now that with this heightened amount of debt in in Nigeria, that the debt to GDP ratio is going to cross that 100% threshold. And once that happens, you start borrowing money to pay back debt, and you get into this death spiral, that you're borrowing money to, to pay back debt, you take on more debt, then you have to borrow more money to pay back that debt, and so forth. Kenya is again, only at about the 65% debt to GDP ratio. So relatively speaking, it is okay. And even the Treasury is saying, you know what, it's we're getting into the risky area, but we're okay for now. The concern, though, is that the Treasury keeps going back to Parliament saying we need to increase the debt ceiling from $9 trillion to $10 trillion, and so forth. And so to Elijah's point, He just doesn't see a way out of this, that Kenya simply isn't going to be able to generate the tax revenue and the taxes from trade and whatnot to be able to sustain this debt. And default is the only way out. My gut says that's where this is all heading right now. And again, we're going to be accused of being Afro-pessimist, which is not the point here at all. But when you look at the situation in Zambia, in Ethiopia today, and in Kenya, It does not bode well, given all of the other pressures that these countries are under, not to mention that Ethiopia has a civil conflict that's underway, and that's costing a lot of money and impacting the economy as well. And also, Ethiopia and Kenya have both received downgrades from the ratings agencies recently, forcing their cost of borrowing. And lastly, Kobus, their currencies are under pressure. So their currencies keep weakening. That makes it more difficult to pay back debt that's in dollars. So this is a very, very difficult situation. What do you think the responsibility is for the Chinese in the event that Kenya might default?
2: Well, this will be a very interesting situation, um, and, and a real test, I think, for for Chinese uh, relations with with African countries, because Kenya has been such a such a, a central, you know, power in 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 the the relationship between the continent and China. Um, I think, you know, it, it'll be very interesting to see what the the kind of the, the debt mitigation or, or debt relief process looks like, especially, you know, after after the somewhat troubled process that we've seen in Zambia, um, and then whether, whether you know, if, if there is a kind of a, a, a series of East African defaults, for example, um, worst case scenario, whether that will then force any kind of reckoning, wider reckoning with this issue of of the amount of debt that these countries are taking on in order to to build crucial infrastructure know you know, it, you know it, it seems like that that is a there's a there's that kind of debt bomb is sitting waiting to 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 explode in several places in the global south um you know and 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 the question then becomes how do these countries avoid that situation while still actually moving forward and developing you know well well you know it, it's, it's impossible for these countries to just kind of sit and just build no new infrastructure but if the only way that they can fund it is through taking on unsustainable levels of debt, then that seems to indicate a a kind of a a wider broken system. Um, But you know, like, like pointing out a broken system and fixing it is two different things.
0: Yeah. And the Chinese so far in Kenya have been more flexible than many of the other creditors. And the Financial Times made a very interesting point this week when they noted that multilateral creditors, the World Bank, the IMF and others, have not wiped out any of the debt either. So there's a lot of pressure on the Chinese saying, what are you going to do about these debt loads in these various developing countries? And yet it's very interesting that private creditors, the multilaterals, none of them have wiped out. All they've done are deferrals. And as we're starting to see in Kenya, is that deferrals really don't solve the problem in any way. So we, we wrote about this week in the newsletter how Uh, One of the reasons why the next wave of debt is going to go up is because the amount that's owed to the Chinese from the first deferral is now coming due. So they've got to borrow more to pay back that. And there's a jump of, I think, 132% in their debt payments to the Chinese coming, just because of a a previous deferral. And so when we get this June 1 deferral that expires, that money has to be paid back again. Same, by the way, with the other creditors as well. So I don't understand why these, these deferrals... Are not more generating more controversy and opposition because they're really not going to do very much. Last point here, Cobus, and I'd like to get your take on this. It does in fact look like that the International Monetary Fund is going to issue new special drawing rights, and that kind of came came due this week because Janet Yellen, the new uh, Treasury Secretary of the United States Treasury, she said she's not objecting to it. Her predecessor and the Trump administration blocked it because they did not want to provide cash unrestricted money that comes from the IMF to go to Iran, China and Venezuela among other US rivals, the Biden administration apparently doesn't seem too concerned about that. So they it looks like are going to clear the way for a 500 billion dollar issuance of special drawing rights. Interestingly, uh, Jude Moore and Hannah Ryder two great China Africa scholars and two Africa analysts They said the special drawing rights aren't that special. The actual amount that Africa is going to get out of it is not that much because it's allocated based on your share in the bank, and the share in the bank is allocated based on the size of your economy. African economies are rather small. Ergo, Africans will not get much of the special drawing rights. Then there was this thing that you talked about in a couple shows ago, how the wealthy countries are going to get together, pool their money, and then give it to poorer countries. Well, Jude and Hannah both kind of pointed out if the vaccines are anything to go by, that probably will not happen because the the, the wealthy countries have not done a very good job at being very equitable in the distribution of vaccines. So they were kind of skeptical that these SDRs are going to have a big impact on Africa. What's your take if this happens?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I, I'd be, I'd be glad if there's any kind of help at all. But I tend to agree with them that, um, that I, I, I'm not very optimistic about the the idea of rich countries kind of pooling, pooling these 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 kind of payouts and and, and re- redirecting them to the global south. If that happens, yay. But you know, you know I think I think all of these politicians will have, you know, quite credible cases to make domestically that they need that money at home, you know, because because all of these, you know, no matter the fact that, that these are all rich countries, they are all, you know, kind of they all also took a COVID hit, which means that then kind of pulling that money and transferring it elsewhere will be politically quite unpopular, I can imagine. Um, you know, like w- one, like in, in relation to an earlier point, like I would love us to get a guest at some stage to really lay out the role of the multilateral institutions in this decade crisis because I keep, I keep like Googling has the World Bank joined the the the, the G 20s um DSSI initiative, and I c- can never find any details about that. You know, like I keep thinking like, oh, they might have joined by now. And then, you know, it's just it's 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 incredible how little discussion there actually is about the role of the multilateral lenders in this this debt crisis in Africa, with all the the, the kind of attention that's paid to to the Chinese side of this. So, so I think it's you know it's 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 an interesting kind of framing of an interesting kind of like dynamic and reporting on this issue coming out of Western press, particularly. Um, And it'll be great to have an expert to actually clear that up.
0: Yeah. We'll look for somebody because I think you're right. That's, that's a topic that we need to dive into a little bit more. Here's what I think they're going to do when they, when they do this. So U S and Europeans, Japanese, the wealthy folks, they're going to say we, we did the DSSI. We did the SDRs. We have done G seven Paris club debt relief. We've done our duty. We're giving money to Kovacs. We've done. That's it. You know what I mean? I think they're going to play that yeah. card. Like It's like, what more can we do? Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. and they've done very little. I mean, obviously, we know they've done very little. But I think we're getting to the point now where they're going to be able to say, you know, we've made it, we've done it. And I don't think they'll be that crass about it, but we've seen them be quite direct in how little they're willing to do to help developing countries. And so, but I, I'm, you know... I think there's going to be some kind of measure of, you know, fatigue in the west of saying, yeah, you know, we've done what we can, you're on your own. Interestingly, they do that, if they do that, guess who will be waiting for them on the other side? Of course, the Chinese are yeah. going to be there. Yeah. You, you, you know, I mean and that is going to be and that's again what we're going to see in play out in Saudi Arabia. If the Americans push very hard on MBS right now, will MBS then turn to the Chinese for love. And so that that is this dynamic that we're in that if the West shuns the developing South away, then it just plays right into the Chinese hand that much more. So interesting dynamics that are here. Final thoughts to you.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it just it just then comes back to to the fact that, you know, in, in some cases, like in, in Kenya for example, we we you know some of these some of these dead deals were corrupt, right? Kind of so so we know we now know that the, the Standard Gage Railway deal was padded. But the thing is, it's not like the, the, these deals, uh, this debt isn't the result just of corruption. It's, and it isn't the result of just like crazy government officials with delusions of grandeur building in, like useless infrastructure. It's, you know, th- there is no other way out. Like if you want, if you want to build crucial infrastructure, then this is how you end up financing it. And so, you know, it, it, it just, it, you know, it, it can't be a situation where, where these countries you know, kind of end up end up in this situation, and then the world system is just like, well, too bad, you know, um, because I think in the end, what what one then sees on on the far end of this is a uh, an erosion of of support and participation in these institutions from global South countries themselves, and you know, like China might be a winner there, but it it, it might also go in other directions. Like you know, this, it, it, I, I'm I, I'm not expressing this in a kind of sophisticated way, but uh, but but I, I'm I'm very interested in. in what would be the effect of uh, you know kind of of some like wh- what kind of rebelling options are open for the global South once the system proves itself to be inherently unsustainable you know um, and and, and it kind of what what the next moves will be for them um you know because I can imagine that 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 they could prove to be quite disruptive you know um, if like once once they, they they decide to stop playing ball, but I have no idea what that actually looks like.
0: Well, let's leave our conversation there. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk about on all sides of this issue. This is what we do every single day in our daily email newsletters. So if you are following these issues that we talked about today with Elijah and what we talked about at the end of the program in terms of what the World Bank is doing, the IMF, the multilaterals, China, all of it together, that's what we're covering every day in our newsletter. Get it every day into your email inbox. Also, a subscription to the China Africa Project will give you full access to our website. They start at 7 bucks a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. Super cheap. We wanted to make it accessible for everybody. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, and you can sign up there. And plus, because you are a loyal podcast listener who's made it all the way to the end of the show, we have a 20% discount for you. Just put the promo code podcast in, and you'll get 20% off your subscription for life. So next year when it renews and the year after and year after, you'll always be at that low rate. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. van Fenstead in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.